Greetings one and all, and welcome back to another episode of the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you another slice of Chinese history this week. This episode is special for my champion short track speed skating listener, Mark, in Western Australia. Today we're looking at the May 4th movement, the Wu Si Yun Dong, one of the most important, most pivotal, most significant events and periods in modern China. Some historians contend modern China begins with this explosive event on May 4th, 1919. I'm sure a lot of you have been wondering, going back to the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842 and through each and every subsequent slap in the face China got from Japan and the Western powers, when were they ever going to stand up and say, enough already? Well, this is it, this episode. This is the event in Chinese history where China sort of wakes up and finally, instead of acquiescing automatically to whatever the latest demands are, China now really starts to get some backbone and begins to explore real ways to get out of this situation they're in. This movement, among other things, gave rise to the Communist Party of China. This is where the founders of the party received their greatest inspiration and nationalistic pride and also got their earliest boost. Coming up soon, on July 1st, will be the 90th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party in 1921. The May 4th movement, more than anything else that I could think of, provided all the necessary inspiration needed for the party to get started. The icon of China, whose face graced hundreds of millions of little red books, Chairman Mao, was particularly inspired by this movement, and I think all educated people can agree that it was on this day and as a result of this whole May 4th movement that the road to liberation, or Jiafang, on 10-1-1949, really had its roots. So today we're going to look at this May 4th period, the events that led up to it, and how the whole thing played out. It's really just a continuation of the same old story again, going back to the Treaty of Nanjing. It was after the Opium War that all the most powerful nations at the time figured out they could pretty much just force their will on China, and whatever concessions they wanted could be had just by grabbing for it. This smash-and-grab era had finally gone on long enough, and after what happened to China at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, where the infamous Treaty of Versailles was signed, the whole injustice of what China had endured finally came to a head. China in 1919 was different from the China that had to suffer the humiliation and consequences of the Treaty of Shimonoseki. China was soundly defeated in the Sino-Japanese War, and reform-minded people, especially the younger crowd, all concluded they had to learn from these modern ways in order to defend themselves from all the foreign powers who had this head start on China. So it was then, after 1895, that Chinese began fanning out to Tokyo, to the U.S., Europe, to study at all these institutions of higher learning. So now, in 1919, it's a quarter century later, and you have a, a whole generation that had learned up close about all these Western ways and politics, government, business, and culture, the arts, armed with this knowledge and background obtained overseas. The students who protested in 1919 were a lot more savvy than the previous generation about the ways of the world and why China had fallen behind and what it was going to take to be a player in the world community and 
not everyone's favorite punching bag. This time, when the May 4th movement began in 1919, the Chinese were a lot better prepared and were able to articulate amongst themselves about the steps China needed to take to get off her knees. So, looking back on the whole history of China in the early 20th century, it's really easy to conclude that the May 4th movement was the watershed of all watersheds as far as where China got up and started to brush itself off. Now, there was still the whole savagery of the Japanese War of Resistance, World War II, and the Civil War that lay ahead. By no means did China enjoy a respite from all the stress that they endured since the 1840s and 50s. But it was definitely a new China and a more modern China at that. So let's look at the May 4th movement. Who were the characters? What were the events that led up to the big demonstration in Beijing on May 4th, 1919? The immediate spark that launched the protests was the whole embarrassing outcome for the Chinese delegation in Paris when they took their rightful place at the Allies' victory table. What was China's involvement in World War I? The Chinese, the French, and British came to an agreement in the summer of 1916 whereby a lot of laborers were recruited, mostly northern Chinese. So many British and French soldiers had been decimated at the Somme, at Ypres, and other bloody battles in France and elsewhere on the continent. By 1917, there was a major need for additional troops to fight on the front lines. So the deal the British made with the government of China called for a Chinese labor corps who were able to do all the heavy lifting and necessary work at the docks, construction projects, and behind the lines. This freed up English and French soldiers to go do battle on the front lines. These Chinese workers, mostly all poor and facing incredible hardship and uncertainty in China, all volunteered for this dangerous mission and served valiantly. The first boat sent from China to France was sunk and 543 Chinese went down to the bottom of the sea. But by 1917, you had about 54,000 workers in France and 96,000 the next year. Although China's role in World War I was not a combat role. Their participation and the role they played was important. Over 2,000 of these Chinese workers died in the course of their duty to the war effort. You know, you could still see many of the graves. They're still there in France and Flanders. The Japanese, like the Chinese, came down on the side of the Allies. China had declared war on Germany and Austria on August 14, 1917, and then these Chinese labor battalions started getting shipped overseas. Japanese soldiers didn't play any combat role in World War I, and most of the action Japan saw uh, involved grabbing territory and moving in on the German concessions in and around Qingdao. So after Germany was defeated and all the great powers that had been involved in this world war all convened in Paris, it came time to divvy up the spoils. This is where China gets the major shaft. There was a 62-member delegation sent to Paris to represent China. By this time, the warlord era, which we haven't discussed yet, is in full swing, and it wasn't clear to anyone if this Chinese delegation represented a country or a government or maybe just a city, Beijing. Although appearances were kept up to show a legitimate Chinese government, as we'll see on another day, uh, China is in the midst of one of its interregnal periods of disunity. 
The delegation was led by Lu Zengjiang and Wang Zhengting. We'll fast forward past all the dramatics that went on behind the scenes and between those in China and those who were representing them in Paris. The word on the street was that China was going to be disappointed about the outcome of the Shandong problem. The vanquished Germans lost everything in China. The big question going back to 1916, when China first started serious discussions about entering the war, was would there be some kind of quid pro quo whereby if China threw in their lots with the Allies, might they at the very least be given back all the vacated German possessions in Shandong? I mean, that was the primary factor in getting involved. It really came down to that. And there were very high hopes in the Chinese delegation that gathered in Paris in April, May, and June of 1919. But those hopes were dashed. No recognition for China. Just another kick in the teeth. But this time the Chinese got very angry. Articles 128 to 134 of the treaty saw Germany renouncing in favor of China all benefits and privileges resulting from provisions of the final Boxer Protocol signed at Peking, September 7, 1901. So far, so good. But then came clauses 156 to 158, which stated, quote, Germany renounces in favor of Japan all her rights and privileges, particularly those concerning the territory of Jiaozhou, which was basically everything around Qingdao. This included the railways, the mines, submarine cables, all of it, everything, all went to Japan. This was the big bombshell. This is what ignited the May 4th demonstrations. Now let's step back a minute and look at how China could have gotten screwed the way they did. First of all, their cause was just. Shandong was Chinese territory and always had been. And for crying out loud, this is where Confucius came from. So it was only right that given how Shandong had been a German sphere of influence and Germany was now a defeated power, it was reasonable to expect this wrong would be righted. Also, there was the fact of China's involvement in the Great War. They were on the winning side, so theoretically they should get a Super Bowl ring just like everyone else. And on top of that, Woodrow Wilson, the U.S. president at the time, was a well-known proponent of self-determination and eh, giving everyone a fair shake. So what went wrong? Well, it was simple. China had been sold out by their own leaders. There were a multitude of traders who later generations of Chinese blame for selling out to foreign interests, especially to the Japanese. But chief among these were Cao Rulin, Lu Zongyu, and Zhang Zongxiang. The other character who sold China down the river was the most powerful force in China around 1916. This was the premier, and also a bona fide warlord who controlled one of the major forces contending for power. Remember, China is divided at this time into the KMT, or Kuomintang, forces, mostly in the south, and then the north is controlled by various warlords, including this premier, Duan Qirui. Duan Qirui was the head of what was called the Anhui clique. He was another Li Hongzhang protege, like Yuan Shikai. He was his Greedy and self-serving is the next warlord, and in order to fund his military campaign against the other competing military powers in China, he arranged a series of bank loans known as the Nishihara Loans. It was named after the guy who arranged them in China on behalf of the Japanese. 
These loans were negotiated by Duan in exchange for what else but territorial concessions. The loans were backed by the Japan government and were sort of a quid pro quo. Duan got his military campaigns bankrolled by Japan, and in return, Japan was able to confirm all their various claims to Shandong and additional rights in Manchuria. And besides this, there had been secret deals made in early 1917 between the Japanese and the French, British, and Italians that called for Japanese naval support against the Germans if necessary. For this commitment of support, Japan was given the right to take over from the Germans after they were defeated. When the Chinese representatives were at the Paris Peace Conference, they were unaware of this. They also didn't know about the Nishihara loans, so you can imagine the outrage once all these revelations surfaced. Once it became known that China's own government had sold the country down the river, Wilson, Clemenceau, and Lloyd George, the leaders of the U.S., France, and Britain, all said international law should prevail, and although it wasn't fair, China had willingly entered into these deals. So this final decision was made on April 30, 1919, and in protest, the Chinese representatives refused to sign the treaty, and that's how it ended. But word, even for 1919 standards, traveled fast. The outrage was explosive. If you recall from the last podcast on the aftermath of the Xinhai Revolution, you had Japan's 21 demands of January 1915 and the ensuing two treaties in May that year. And now you had the whole humiliation of not only China's contribution to the war effort being disrespected, but China's whole sovereignty and territorial integrity as well. The Opium War Treaties, the Boxer Protocols, the Treaty of Shimonoseki, the 21 Demands, and now this. This is the part where the intellectuals rise up and come into their own. Okay, so now we have a little background on how the May 4th demonstration got set up. We have a long string of humiliations, and finally with the outcome of the Great War and the Treaty of Versailles going so dramatically against China, this is the final insult. So let's look at the people who led the charge and who rose to prominence during this time. As I mentioned earlier, about 25 years had passed since Chinese started leaving in droves to go study overseas. Now, after having done some time overseas, a lot of these students and teachers are back in China and filled with all kinds of new ideas and wisdom. A very hearty debate is going on amongst the educated class about the road China should take, about the role of Confucius and China's new modern society, and also the matter of which form of government best suited China. You know, with the downright betrayal that the Chinese felt at the conclusion of World War I and the resulting treaty, it really turned a lot of influential people off as far as Western liberal ideas went. Those who had looked to the West and Western ways of government were so stung by the outcome of the Treaty of Versailles that right then and there they decided the Western model was not an honorable one. The whole betrayal sort of rolled out the red carpet for Marxism to walk right into China and allow everyone to get acquainted with the whole idea and see if the shoe fit. Remember, in 1917, you had the Bolsheviks and the October Revolution. These earth-shattering events going on in Russia reverberated in China right at the moment of the West's perfidy. The way China was betrayed by the West made a lot of Chinese take a long, 
hard look at this whole new Marxist ideology and to what was going on in Russia. Okay, so let's name some names here and discuss who were the forces that led the movement. Chief among everyone was Chen Duxiu. He was a major force in Chinese intellectual thought and one of the co-founders of the Communist Party in China. In fact, he was the party's first uh, general secretary. Chen Duxiu, well, he was a firebrand and completely rejected the old ways and anything Confucius had to say. He would say, don't listen to those conservatives and Confucian scholars. They have nothing to teach China in this modern age. And furthermore, we'll just keep telling you the old ways are still the best way to deal with whatever came up. Two guys are credited with the founding of the Communist Party of China. One is this guy, Chen Duxiu. The other was Li Chao. They were the Lenin and McCartney, the Rogers and Hammerstein of the Communist Party in the embryonic days of 1915, 1916, all the way up to 1919. Li was the head librarian over at Peking University. Guess who the assistant librarian was? Mao Zedong, a.k.a. Chairman Mao. Now, you also had another co-founder of the Communist Party, along with Chen Duxiu and Li Dajiao. There was also the great writer Hu Shi. When the Communist Party was still an embryo, just beginning to divide, you had these three guys. And the enzyme, or magical additive, the thing at the time, or whatever you want to call it, that created this whole intellectual atmosphere was the magazine known as Xin Qing Nian, New Youth Magazine, La Jeunesse. The first issue came out in September 1915. This was Chen Duxiu's baby and one of the things that made him great. It made him great because what came about as a result of this magazine was the whole new culture movement in China. This magazine was the outlet for all the writers and writings that defined these historic times. Every and all future leader that would go on to found the Communist Party and help build the nation after 1949 were all influenced by the writings and the ideas that came out of New Youth magazine. Mao wrote his first article for New Youth in 1917. In the 14th century in Italy, well, it wasn't called Italy yet, but in that time period when Dante and Boccaccio were writing in this new Italian vernacular, it ended up laying the groundwork and setting up the Renaissance. It changed everything. Now China's time had come to at last have their own sort of rebirth. Right when all this new Chinese vernacular writing begins to really gain momentum, you have the one-two punch of the October Revolution in Russia in 1917 and the whole ordeal and disappointment in Paris with the treaty. These were two topics tailor-made for the writers at the time who knew better than anyone else how to inspire their countrymen and with the, with the turn of a phrase, or with sarcasm and historical allusions. Let me give you a brief lesson about the written Chinese language. I mean, I'm not a teacher or anything, but I can tell you this much. Now, I'm pretty much self-taught in the written language, and I hardly call myself trained enough to read Dream of the Red Chamber in Chinese without the constant need to refer to my dictionary. But if I'm on an airplane flying from Ningbo to Hong Kong and there's a Chinese newspaper or magazine on the seat, I could read it with okay comprehension. However, if you showed me a book written in the Qing Dynasty using the Wenyanwen or classical Chinese writing system, 
I'd be able to read most of the characters, but I would have almost no comprehension whatsoever of what was printed on the page. You see, Chinese characters, they usually have more than one meaning. When you look some characters up in the Chinese dictionary, they'll have eight, ten, or twelve different meanings in archaic usages. If you were trained in the classics and knew how to read it, a sentence written in characters using the classical Chinese style means something different from how you say the same meaning in the vernacular. Let's just say that Wen Yanwen, the classical style, is as dead as you can get, and I have not met too many Chinese of my generation that could read it well. I would compare it to something like Latin or ancient Greek. To be able to understand classical Chinese requires a lot of learning. You've heard in more than a few past episodes how difficult it was to pass these civil service exams. Classical Chinese is extremely intricate and subtle, and when you read something written in classical Chinese, well, no one actually talks like that. Vernacular Italian opened up new worlds to the masses of people in the 14th century. The new culture movement's signature trait was promoting vernacular Chinese. It opened up new vistas in China. This baihua, or plain speech, was in a way a second revolution as much as printing was in capturing ideas on paper and disseminating ideas and information. And one of the greats at the time of the new culture movement, whose work was prominent and who sprang out of the pages of New Youth magazine was the great Hu Shi. Hu Shi was one of those young people who had left China in the early 1900s to study overseas. Hu studied at both Cornell and Columbia for seven years. He came back to China and was recruited by Chen Duxiu to join the faculty at Peking University. Chen was the dean of the university then. No one did more for launching the use of the vernacular Chinese in modern Chinese literature than Hu Shi and one other guy I'll mention in a second. Hu Shi said, quote, a dead language, meaning classical Chinese, cannot produce a living literature. He wrote many articles for New Youth magazine and was supported a great deal by Chen Duxiu. Hu Shi was not as much of a hothead as Chen Duxiu. Hu Shi still maintained some attachment to you know, some traditional learning, but still said everything from the old days had to be re-examined to make sure it had relevance and use in the new society. Now, along with Hu Shi, in terms of the giants of early Chinese vernacular literature, was Lu Xun. It seemed no one could explain things like these two could. No one could ridicule the ridiculous and irrational in China like Hu Shi and Lu Xun. They so perfectly articulated how pretty much everyone felt, and it was as if China and the Chinese finally had a voice that in some way or another spoke to everyone and for them. The writings that came out of New Youth magazine really spoke to the heart of the Chinese and made people think about China and where the country was going. It was Lu Xun who, with his two short story collections, A Call to Arms and Wandering, defined Chinese modern literature at the time. He wrote his first article for New Youth in May of 1918. It was an early masterpiece, Diary of a Madman, Kuangren Yuji. The whole vernacular movement really took off with Lu Xun. I suppose we can trace things back to Liang Qichao and Yan Fu, whose 
works at the turn of the century inspired the next generation, who were the ones now writing articles in New Youth magazine and publishing all kinds of short stories and political pieces that were really stirring things up amongst the masses as well as the literati. These great writers whose works inspired the leaders of what later became the People's Republic, they didn't just appear out of nowhere. They were inspired by people such as Liang Qichao and Yan Fu and others who sought an explanation for China after the events of the 1890s and the turn of the century. Lu Xun and some of the other writers of this time will be covered later on when we take a more in-depth look at their impact on Chinese history and events. Lu Xun is a, is a giant among giants. Okay, so now we've discussed the Treaty of Versailles and how China lost face and didn't get any of the winnings. Nothing was left on the table for China when all was said and done. And we've also touched upon some of the main characters in the new culture movement, Chen Duxiu, Li Dachao, and Hu Shi, Lu Xun. So word gets back to everyone in China at the end of April that it was the worst case scenario in Paris. And now all the outrage is organized and channeled into a protest that had been pushed up to the date of May 4th, 1919. All the various student organizations in Beijing, such as the New Tide Society, Work Study Society, Cooperative Society, all these student organizations, all assembled on the morning of May 4th in front of Tiananmen, the Gate of Heavenly Peace. Now, Tiananmen then was not even close to what you see it today. Now, the demonstration was originally set for May 7th, which was the four-year anniversary of what was called National Humiliation Day, when Japan presented the amended demands originally presented to Yuan Shikai. But the powers that be at the time, uh, they found out about this planned demonstration and they organized a crackdown to prevent the demonstration from taking place. So everything got pushed up to Sunday morning, 10 a.m. on May 4th. There was nationwide support from not only students from other universities, but from Chinese business groups and professional associations as well, especially in the aftermath of the demonstration. Everyone was on board with this. That is, everyone except the warlords who saw all this as counterproductive to their agenda. And of course, there were also conservatives who didn't think this whole idea about tearing down the past was a good thing. So everyone gathers at the Gate of Heavenly Peace, Tiananmen, and the demonstrators from about 13 different universities in Beijing are about 3,000 strong. They marched on the foreign legation quarter and wanted to meet the U.S. ambassador, but back in those days it was protected by a wall and by guards, and this was ever since the boxers besieged this same area over a decade before. Once it was learned that no one was going to speak with the students, this sort of heated things up a notch, and then they marched on Cao Rulin's house. Cao was one of the traitors who had been blamed for selling out to Japan. In fact, he was more or less the chief pro-Japan figure in the Beiyang government that controlled Beijing at the time. Cao Rulin, more than most, sort of became the poster child for appeasement and giving in to the Japanese and looking to them as the model for China. Cao incidentally, was the one tasked by Yuan Shikai in 1915 to actually sign the 21 demands. In the heat of the moment, the student demonstrators burned his house down, but Cao had escaped and had sought refuge elsewhere. 
Zhang Zongxiang was not so lucky. He was another of the so-called traitors, vilified by the Chinese students and by history books for being in the pockets of the Japanese imperialists. They caught him, and they beat him up pretty badly and taught him a lesson. Well, as things progressed, the police had organized and were using some very heavy-handed tactics to quell the demonstration. The gist of the demonstration could be summed up in one of the banners that read, quote, China's territory may be conquered, but it cannot be given away. The Chinese people may be massacred, but they will not surrender. Our country is about to be annihilated. Rise up, brethren. It's it said that people who lined the streets to watch the protesters wept with patriotic pride as they read all the anti-Japanese banners that passed them by. This was news all over China. Everyone came together on this one. Students, teachers, rural merchants who had made it big, entrepreneurs who lived in the cities, labor unions, and, and the man on the street. Finally, the Zhongguo Lao Baixing could say there was action this time and not just talk. In all, about 1,150 of the protesters got locked up. The military interests in Beijing at the time didn't like the tone of the protests. However, widespread public pressure from all over China forced the release of those arrested, and this was a bittersweet victory for the movement and had showed that China had turned a corner. A rising tide of nationalism was gathering momentum like never before, and the May 4th movement that followed the actual day of the demonstration had great voices who were able to articulate the mood of the nation and offer suggestions and ideas regarding which roads to follow and which to avoid. You know, up till now, the new culture movement and much of the writings coming out of these writers was not that political. It wasn't until after the May 4th demonstrations that the learned and literate classes directed their ire and their pens at the politics of the day. And you could see in their writings how they blended the cultural and the political in a language all literate and semi-literate people could easily read. This was the broadest demonstration of national feeling ever. There was also an iconoclastic element to the May 4th movement. The whole experience encapsulated all the frustrations, the despair and hopes of all Chinese caught up in the movement, either as a spectator or a participator. There were plenty of Chinese out there who could trace every single failure and fault of China or Chinese culture directly or indirectly to Confucianism. Among some, but not all, there was total rejection and outright vilification of the old ways. The prevailing attitude among many was that it was the old, irrelevant ways that got China into this mess in the first place. And of course, the May 4th movement was also an anti-imperialist movement and spoke out viciously and directly against the Japanese and those powers who had taken advantage of China in their time of helplessness. People were really venting now, and of course you had the greatest writers at the time who acted as the perfect mouthpiece for the people's passions. Many turned to Marxism. But here was the problem. At this stage, just before the founding of the CCP in July 1921, China had yet to go through a bourgeois stage of development. There was no industrial labor class yet who were ripe for revolution. China didn't fit the Russian mold. 
So on the one hand, some Chinese began to embrace Bolshevism, but on the other hand, according to Marxist ideology, China wasn't ready yet and still needed to go through the whole five-step process or whatever it was. And on the other hand, just like all these international brands who eyed the China market and its limitless potential, so did the Bolsheviks. And if they had to bend a little to take China's unique situation and stage of development into account, then they just had to do it. And so it began that the Comintern started sending their people to work with the Chinese and get things organized. But all these fascinating details we are going to hold for another day when we look at the founding of the CCP. Some of the writers whose work made it to New Youth magazine taught Mao and others who thought like Mao that complete cultural and moral transformation was necessary to have real, tangible social and political reform in China. You had to tear down the old to build the new. You had to have like a cultural revolution. So now you could see where Mao got that great idea. In the aftermath that followed, there were a multitude of student strikes, mass arrests, organized boycotts, and one demonstration after another. There was an utter explosion onto the scene of pamphlets and periodicals of all kinds. And now, with the vernacular becoming so commonplace, it was perfect timing. And Western thinkers and artists started coming to China. Margaret Sanger brought ideas of family planning to China. Uh, John Dewey, Albert Einstein, Henrik Ibsen, and many others from Europe, from India, and elsewhere in Asia. Now the ideas were flowing and into the 1920s and 30s. Even after Japan invades China, the new ideas that grew out of the new culture and May 4th movements flourished all over China. Despair turned to hope. Now, we're going to look at this topic another day, but the emancipation of women and the whole women's movement really started to take off at this time, too. It was during the aftermath of the May 4th demonstrations that Chinese women stood up for the first time in an effective and in a coordinated way that made people take notice. But as we'll soon see, following the May 4th demonstrations, China has another Three very difficult and bloody decades of war and atrocities before Mao gets to stand up on the podium at Tiananmen and declare the Chinese people have stood up. And you want to know the funny thing? In December 1922, just a few years after the May 4th demonstration in 1919, Japan signed the Washington Naval Treaty, or Five Power Treaty as it was also called. It was a naval limitations treaty with the Western powers in Japan. Its intention was to prevent any kind of arms race like there was just prior to and leading up to World War I. Anyways, after all this, Japan handed Qingdao back to the Republic of China. So after all this fighting and causing 10,000 years of ill will, three years after the fact, Japan leaves Shandong. But as we'll see later on, they come back with a vengeance, but that's for another day. And we're going to leave it right here for now and sign off until next time. Sorry about the uh, delay, everyone. I just had too good of a time in Vegas this past weekend. Paul McCartney was fantastic. It opened up with Magical Mystery Tour, and the last encore of the night was the uh, Sgt. Pepper's reprise and the end from Abbey Road. Not bad for a guy who's uh, turning 69 this weekend. My daughter is the same birthday as Sir Paul. 
Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. That is, if you made it this far. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off once again from the farthest edge of Los Angeles County in the foothills of the San Bernardino Mountains, from the very civilized and patriotic town of Claremont, California. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.